Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Christian Koch, founder and editor at Foundations, a modern publication about digital infrastructure. He is a veteran leader in the digital infrastructure space, having held several leadership and operational roles at companies such as Microsoft, Twitter, Databank, Packet Fabric, and Globix. In 2016, Christian co-founded the New York Network Operators Group, a nonprofit organization that aims to connect network operators and technology professionals through educational events and programs. In this episode, Christian talks about how his interest in information and curiosity to learn about as much as he could led him to be both a generalist and expert in the world of digital infrastructure. He explains the landscape of interconnectivity including its history of development, current infrastructure, expansion, evolution, and use throughout the United States. Christian also delves into what he thinks Edge is becoming, the different layers of networking, and how the cloud will become a primary infrastructure for workloads in the future. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with Edge Solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Christian Koch, founder and editor at Foundations. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm good, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing terrific. One of the things I like to ask people is how they got into technologies. Is there anything in your childhood or your formative years that really hooked you into technology as a career? Well, let's see. You know, if I think back, probably when I was young in maybe third or fourth grade, I was just getting my hands on a computer and ended up building one myself. And that was probably what really kicked me off and got me into what, what was it? What was it you built? It was back then, it was a 486, and I think it was like one of the first Pentiums. My memory escapes me. You're, but, you're younger uh, than, I, than I am. <laughs> My first computer is a 6502, an 8-bit 6502. Yeah. See, I don't even know what that is. Oh. <laughs> it's what was in the original Atari 2600 game machines and then the Atari 400. It's original Apple II. Okay. Yeah, original okay. Apple II had a 6502. Little, okay. little 8-bit cool. processor. It's fun. It's fun to program in that. Did you program computers or did you just more on the hardware side? No, no, I was much more on the hardware side. I like putting things together, have like this, you know, curiosity that I've kind of figured out and just like to poke around and learn how things work. And when did the internet become part of your computer life? I discovered bulletin boards, right? Pre-internet, you mean like CompuServe? Yeah, so even pre pre that, right? And I forget the names of the software that people use, major BBS or things like that maybe. And and you just go on and there's nothing there. It's like maybe some text-based games and, you know, a bunch of information. And I think the information is what I was really drawn to and just learning because that that curiosity that I had. It's just like I just want to learn about everything, right? And so... I, I much more consider myself like much more of a generalist than I've had some areas where I'm probably much more expert level in, but I do consider myself much more of a generalist because I'm so interested in just how everything in the world works or why things are the way they are. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I'm that way too, although I'm probably coming more of it from a communication standpoint than a technical standpoint, but I, I certainly like the technology a lot. Are you a big science fiction fan? No, actually, that's probably really? what, yeah, that's probably wow. one of the really 
odd things about me. My fiance is a big science fiction fan. And so she's always like, how are you such a big geek and you don't like science fiction? So, you know, I've not seen Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, like none of that stuff. Wow. Well, hey, science fact, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's great. Well, I think that the people that know you tend to think of you as an expert in interconnection, which is a specialty and it is part of the internet. How'd you end up in networking and interconnection? Good question. Well, when I got into working in the industry, it was when hotels were just bringing, they call it high speed back then, high speed internet into rooms, which was a dongle or cable attached to the desk, which eventually was all cable downstairs to an MPOE or whatnot. What's an MPOE? Uh, It's like a point of entry, minimum point of entry, medium point of entry, kind of where the telecom equipment would sit, kind of entrance facility or server room, server closet, IT closet, plenty of ways to describe in layman's terms. And that would be where there was a bunch of DSL equipment. And that's what powered the high-speed internet for hundreds of hotel guests. That's amazing. So is the DSL over the phone line into the room or was the DSL over the phone line to the central office or or branch office? Yeah, so it was Ethernet cabling up to each room and then all the DSM, DSLAM and all that kind of equipment downstairs in the basement. And I had no idea what it was, right? I was literally a technician that was cabling and plugging things in. And that really kind of got me interested in. So let's talk about the Internet. So when we talk about interconnection, like what's what's your definition of interconnection? At its simplest form, it's the connecting of two separate systems. That system could be a network. It could be a computer system and that are basically under separate and distinct autonomous control. So Matt's computer network and Christian's computer network. So how do we interconnect ourselves, right? In in a technological world and all that, we connect via messaging or phone lines or video or like this podcast right now, right? And then, so if you take that to the internet, it's about two networks connecting with each other. Well, I mean, the definition of the internet is a network of networks, right? So yes, it makes very much sense that interconnection would be a fundamental quality of the internet. When you think about interconnection, you tend to think of also not just straight connecting of networks, but IXPs, these typically privately owned buildings that used to be network access points, but are now owned by Equinix and others, where lots of networks connect. How did that come about? And what's important about that? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this predated my entrance into the industry, right? They were building NSFNet and I'll get a lot of this wrong, right? So if you want to know the real history, go look in Wikipedia or something that speech from Vinsurf. But they had these network access points when NSFNet was kind of built and how do we interconnect these different research networks around, around the country. And so network access points were born right? And NAP for short. And as kind of these networks evolved and the internet was kind of born, we then had what was called an internet exchange point, right? And it was basically the same thing. And it just kind of, you know, evolved in its naming. Fast forward a a little bit further, the term internet exchange point no longer really referenced the building, but referenced the facility, as in the switch that was providing the function of switching packets. And in the early days, this was ATM, right? And you had things like May East and May West, right? And a couple other network access points or IXPs across the country and even across the world. Some of the oldest IXP is actually a Hong Kong Internet Exchange back in the 90s, the London Internet Exchange, AMSIX, 
which is the Amsterdam Internet Exchange all in the 90s. And then you had Equinix, which was born, right, with being in Washington, D.C., northern Virginia area. And they had this Internet Exchange. And now they had these carrier network-dense co-location facilities. When you say a carrier network-dense, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so if it's a service provider, telecom carrier, typically the same thing to me, right? It's a company that provides communications infrastructure, whether that's it's kind of a measure of reliability or, and scale. Yeah, so it's a company that provides telecom equipment and delivers broadband, as we call it now, or backbone connectivity, which would more fall actually under a network service provider. So an NSP, right? So your ISP is delivering internet to users, residential or commercial at home, and your NSP is kind of connecting all those ISPs, right? That backbone, which a lot of people are starting to get away from and starting to actually use the term network fabric these days. Yeah, so we'll, we'll start talking a little bit about that. So draw us a map of, in just of the United States and where's the backbone? It, it does go all over the place, right? And typically fiber takes the path along railroad tracks. And so you can easily see that when some of the earlier fiber networks were kind of building these, building up some of the earlier service providers were building these networks out. But if we look in terms of interconnection and where these data centers are that are network dense, right? They have a lot of different networks connecting at them. They are typically New York, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Miami, Dallas, Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Jose in the Bay Area. And most of the major kind of tier one NFL cities, as like people like to call them, there's another level down where there's more of that, right? And it's a little more localized, right? So if you go to Reno, there's a carrier hotel in Reno that local networks connect at. Or if you go up to Milwaukee, there's a carrier hotel with a few networks. And obviously, they're not as dense as these interconnection points or interconnection hubs in Northern Virginia, Dallas, and so forth. But regardless, they're still there for these networks to come and interconnect with each other. Metaphorically in my head, there's a big difference between a, a hut and an exchange, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you, you listed off five or six cities, and there's actually a lot more NFL teams than that. Houston has an NFL team, and it doesn't have a major interconnection point as far as I know. Why is that? And is that good? So on Houston first, actually Houston does have one. It's just small, right? Because like, so first off, let's see. So Houston has one carrier hotel and it has some data centers that are fairly network dense. But typically this is all really also based around population and that's how networks end up gravitating toward those locations, right? Houston's say, the largest city in Texas. Right, which is kind of crazy, right? But I guess as a lot of these cable MSOs and Telecom operators were building out their networks. They had these places where they interconnected and they built out massive infrastructure. And the way they designed these networks is they had different tiers themselves as well, right? So they had that IP edge, which is typically where they're connecting with other networks and allowing that traffic to be exchanged. And that is typically then aggregating maybe some smaller facilities, right? Like a central office or a mobile switching centers, depending on which type of network we're talking about. And then you've got to obviously keep going down the line, right? And then there's huts and things like that and inline amplification sites and towers and this whole big string of infrastructure that actually makes up the internet. Now, when we talk about a backbone, so these major interconnection points are often called tier one cities. And we talk about a backbone. Is it safe to say that the backbone is what's connecting these tier one cities together? Yeah, technically, yeah. So a provider like 
Zeo or Verizon builds out fiber, right? And so they've got long haul fiber, they've got metro fiber and regional networks and all that. So they end up connecting these data centers and co-location facilities, right? And all types of other infrastructure, right? Whether it's antennas and rooftops or towers or huts, right? They've got this, just look at across the United States and you look at a map and you've got a fiber out going from west to east and it touches all kinds of different infrastructure and facilities along the way and tier two tier three but there's not a lot of action there it might just pass through right it might just need to pass through for amplification to go to the next site and intuitively like the fastest path between two points would be a straight line and for mm -hmm. geography or as you said where the train tracks are because that's where it's easily fiber because they have easements and rights away so the packets on the internet i tend to think of two things one is best effort so you're not guaranteed it's going to get to someplace although it's miraculous that it does. It gets all over mm -hmm. the world, right? Which is the power of the internet. But is there a phantom internet that's sort of controlled by the cloud companies? I, I hear about the, the growth of the private backbones. And so when I think of a map of the internet, I tend to think of the, the large, it's almost the, the hub and spoke map of, of the internet, like an old airport diagram, right? Where you have these feeder airlines and then you get on a major mm -hmm. hub to hub. And yet I think if you overlaid Amazon's network and Google's network and Facebook's network, you would end up with very different paths that many of us don't get to use unless we're a customer of theirs. Is that accurate? So yes, yeah, there's some of that going on right now. And it's- I heard 75% ever... of the traffic on the internet might be on private backbones. I've never heard any stats around it, but I would probably say that's, that's kind of believable because I think if we take a quick look back at interconnection, right? And there's different types. There's, hey, Matt, we're going to put an agreement in place. We're going to have private interconnection between us. Or we're going to say, Matt, you're not really worth it for private interconnection. Your traffic's of low value to me. There's not a lot of it. But you, we can just connect over the public internet exchange, right, where everybody connects to a single switch or a, a group of switches that are distributed within a metro area, typically. And then allow, then we can establish peering over that, right? So two different types of interconnection. But then if we talk about, so if you, if you consider that, yeah, that's a, a lot of the interconnection in the U.S. is private. And if we think about this cloud infrastructure and some of these hyperscalers that are building large networks, then yeah, that's pretty believable, especially as you see the adoption of cloud and the proliferation of cloud and how many cities and how many data centers and how many companies are using it, then yeah, they've, they've built some pretty big networks. And in some cases like Facebook or Meta, whatever they're calling themselves these days, they are getting into building their own fiber infrastructure. Yeah, the last and, mile, yeah. And yeah, last mile, but not even last mile, but even middle mile, middle mile right? Yeah. So, and I, I think that business is called middle mile infrastructure. Facebook connectivity program has done a lot of really cool and really interesting things and made a lot of really interesting investments. And so what they're doing there is building out last mile and they're breaking out into local communities to provide fiber networks for broadband. So really cool stuff. If you're interested in that, go over to Facebook's blog and check now, it out. Now, why are these private companies doing that? I mean, in some ways, it's the dirty little secret of the internet, right? Because we all think of it as this public network that we all have access to. And certainly as a consumer, it feels that way. I I can connect to any IP address pretty much and request a web page or, or whatever I do on the internet. And yet, if I were to look at where every one of my packets go, I mean, I, I spent an hour today shopping on Amazon.com, and I'm guessing a good percentage of the traffic that I generated and that its sites generated on the back end went over a private network. Help us figure out how to think about that, the private versus the public and, 
and like what that really means. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I think with anything any business does, having control over what you can achieve with the infrastructure lands pretty high in a list of things that are valuable to the business, right? And then comes economies of scale, which means lower costs and brings efficiencies and operating leverage, right? But then when you talk about some of these other companies, it's like, okay, user acquisition, right? I mean, in the terms of someone like Facebook, why are they going and investing billions of dollars in Africa? Right. Well, look how big Africa is. Look how many people, people are not using Facebook. Sending so. messages on Facebook and watching ads, yeah. So, I, yeah, I mean, look, and it's unfair to say that that's the main driver, and I think it's just, it's one of the drivers, right? But as they've grown over the years, they've gained that experience and in building infrastructure and building data centers and understanding what they need. And the fact is that at the scale they operate at and they're growing at, a lot of the public or private businesses that are building this infrastructure can't always support them directly or don't have the cash or don't want to make the investment to build it themselves. There might only be one or two users of it, right? That might be a Facebook yeah. meta or a Google, right? right. I mean, talk about an or, or they're trying to that. offer a higher, higher quality of service and, yeah. and using a best effort network that somebody else largely controls. You're right. So yeah, control controls a really good point. That really does seem, seem valid. And people throw out like cloud on ramps and like, what is that? Well, it's just getting onto Amazon's backbone or Google's backbone faster <laughs> and yeah, hang, yeah. hanging them for the privilege. But you, now you have a, a presumably a higher quality of service network because it's it's under more control end end. Exactly. And it's funny you mentioned the on-ramp because that language is it's, it's, it's being used a lot more these days because of the cloud on-ramps that came about, which exactly as I said, are, that's the physical equipment and gateway to get onto the cloud provider network. But I was reading a article the other day last week, which was like the 27th anniversary of the Bill Gates memo that he sent about the internet being a tidal wave. And he talked about the economics of an internet connection from an office, right? It didn't, it wasn't built on usage or consumption. It was, hey, back then, I mean, who knows what it was then? I want a T1 or a T3, right? And you get all that bandwidth and you connect to the internet. But he used it as we'll have all these on-ramps from our offices and from companies to the internet. So one of the things you said, so again, I'm thinking of the, the public backbone, and I guess to some extent the private backbone as a, as a hub and spoke system. And you said that now some people are, try, are starting to look at it like it as a fabric. And when I think of a fabric, I think of a more uniform kind of meshed approach to the network. And tell me what that means, the internet as a fabric. Well, I mean, I'm going to go and tell you one thing. I'm going to say it's mostly a marketing term. <laughs> but I think... It's, I think, it's software-defined networking. <laughs> I, think, I think really the first time... I can recall seeing network fabric or the word fabric was when some of these hardware vendors and networking protocols came out to make it easier to build networks that scaled and were were a big mesh or maybe there was something with like cloths in there or when you had a bunch of switches or routers and then you connected them and you connect them. It was kind of kind of getting away from the hierarchy of network design where you had a core and access and an edge layer. And then network fabric is kind of why, like- why, you, is you that, kind of, why is that important? I think it's more about scaling, really, as, mm-hmm. as networks got larger, right? And protocols evolved and technologies evolved. There became new and better ways to actually operate the network with depending what protocol you were using, whether it's BGP, which is kind of used to announce 
the IP routes that your company uses for its applications and its servers and its network to either your own network or other networks. It can be used externally or internally. And so I think we've seen some evolution with that that make that a little bit easier and scalable to build networks. And so we kind of, I think Juniper might have even been the one that started calling things like a network fabric. And so I think people just apply it to anything these days. I mean, it's a neat metaphor and it's current use might be different than its original use. One of the things that I tend to think about is a fabric is, it's, it's one solid piece, right? And it's foldable. And what that makes me think of is, is not only a, a network at scale and a network that can get anywhere, but a network that can get you anywhere through multiple choices and can be reconfigured. It can be folded and refolded to do it. And I know that part of your recent job history, you worked at Megaport and then Packet Fabric, which are network as a service. And when I think of well, what does Megaport do or what does is, what is Packet Fabric do? Well, Packet Fabric, look at that. <laughs> yep, exactly. Right, right. So, so, why don't, so why don't you tell me a little bit about network as a service and how it works and who uses it and why? This is a really uh, an interesting question because over the last few years, we saw this term network as a service, you know, abbreviated NAS, the same way as like SAS or IaaS or whatever come about. But it applies to several types of companies and products, and they don't all necessarily fall within the same bucket or operate and compete in the same market. But essentially what it is, is delivering network services in a similar fashion as the cloud. So on demand with So what's, APIs. what's a network service that I might buy on demand? Yeah, so um, let's see, connectivity okay. is the first one. Like right? what kind so, of connectivity? Yeah, you can get cloud connectivity, right? So that's interconnection from your private network, your private infrastructure to a cloud. You could get connectivity from your infrastructure to an internet exchange point. You can get connectivity from your infrastructure to your infrastructure in a different location. We're going to even try to even stay away from data center these days because infrastructure is becoming so ubiquitous that it doesn't necessarily have to be a data center, right? Could be it could be on prem, it, it could be a tower, it could be anything. But for the purposes of what's going on these days, is use cases data center to data center, data center to cloud data center to internet exchange point. If the data center you're in doesn't have an internet exchange point, some of these companies like Packet Fabric and Megaport can actually deliver that service to you. So you're basically consuming connectivity as a service, right? And you can spin it up, you can spin it down, you can pay for what you use, whatever floats your well, let, me, let me say that back to you in my simpleton model of the world. So I'm, I'm sitting here in my house connected on AT&T fiber, and I feel like I'm connected to everything that I could possibly need to be connected to. But let's say I'm an enterprise and I want a different kind of connection. I want to get to what? To a cloud faster or to one of my other facilities faster? Or is, is it about privacy? Is it about speed? Is it about resilience? So I, I think what you're saying is it allows me through software on a consumption basis to configure mm -hmm. a network that that's at least mine for the time being, as opposed right. to... When I send it on a packet leaves my house, it's on the internet. Is that essentially what's going on? Is I can configure what amounts to my own network? 
Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. That's that's a great that's a great way to think about it. There's, I think, there's a lot of different ways to think about it, and there's, you know, they're all probably right. But I mean, for for the purposes of what we're talking about, I think that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, and and how does that work on the back end? Because I mean, Packet Fabric is a software company mostly, right? How does my private network? What does it get assembled from, and how does it get assembled, and how does it how's that delivered? Yeah, so think about it in terms of building blocks, right? And just like any other telecommunications network or network service provider builds out this network. These companies like Packet Fabric and Megaport have essentially done the same thing. We start at the bottom and say, okay, well, we need fiber. And okay, so let's get the fiber. And in some cases, fiber might be too expensive. So then you buy wavelengths, which is lighting up on the spectrum of dark fiber and being able to carve out whether it's 100 gigabits or 10 gigabits and, and connect what so, you need to connect. So a company like Packet Fiber or, or Megaport will, will assemble some capacity either by lighting their own fiber or getting some lit waves. Yeah, okay. exactly. So so you're there on the bottom, right? So now you've, you've put that equipment on it. You've got some equipment. Now you need your Ethernet equipment. IP equipment, so your packet-based network sits on top of the optical network. And so now we're getting somewhere. So now you've got that, and you've got that connected, and you can connect different locations and different data centers, typically using Ethernet these days, because that is kind of, when I talk about this a lot lately, I talk about it, Ethernet seems to be having this resurgence, because it's probably the one technology that's as flexible as virtual machines in the cloud. Like, you can basically scale it up and down, whereas... And by, by, and by that, I mean, you can go from five gigabit Ethernet circuit to a 10 gigabit Ethernet circuit by issuing some configuration commands and making that change, similar to how you can configure or reconfigure a virtual machine, whereas a wavelength isn't really like that because it's all about dedicated connectivity. So if you think about Ethernet, share connectivity, and that's what cloud computing is at the end of the day anyway, right? It's a shared infrastructure platform. So it makes it a little bit more flexible, a little bit more easy to scale and deliver those services. So... We've got that Ethernet layer. We, we go from there, right? And now, so now on top of that, we've got the software layers. And that could be a controller, an orchestration engine, meaning that's all the automation. That's all the software that's making this work, whether it's configuring the network or whether it's delivering services for customers. You've got that software layer now that's really controlling the network. No more network engineers logging into a network device like a router or a switch manually making changes to do something. Well, how do I specify my, what I want? That's great. So like the next layer down on top, we've got the API layer. And some people do this differently, but you know, I think the more common approach is that it's in an API-first approach, the API layer sits in on top, and you can then build a web portal for customers to use that actually consume the API. And so the way that looks is you have this API layer, and then you have a portal that's using the API to configure the network, orchestrate the network, deliver services, or customer can actually just use the API if they don't want to use the web portal. And then they can click buttons and specify what they want to configure. So they go in, they say, I want to connect from location A to location Z. Location A is typically their their connection into that platform, into that fabric. And location Z could be a cloud, it can be another data center, it can be whatever other location or service the platform offers. Would it also be safe to say that the companies like that are network as a service, another way of looking at their business is they first assemble some dedicated capacity and then they carve it up on demand, essentially network slices, but shared infrastructure for their customers on demand? Absolutely. So you get, you know, let's say a very simple network and let's say we're like, I don't know, 
Chicago to New York to Dallas to San Francisco. Let's say that's a network and you've got customers and that want to buy services. They want to buy connectivity to clouds. They want to buy connectivity between those data centers. So you go out and you buy 100 gig capacity between each of those. And then on the back end, you manage that capacity and you kind of sell it off and you can oversubscribe, right? And make sure that you have the tools to manage and monitor it just like any other infrastructure business and just kind of go from there. You just continue to scale and you continue to offer these new services. Customers can spin it down. They can sign a contract for a long term. They can use it for 10 days and turn it off, right? Because it's it's flexible. It's, it's, it's elastic in that sense, the same way cloud was like, hey, you don't need to build all of these networks. You don't need to buy this. In, in this term, you don't need to buy fiber. You don't need to buy your own wavelengths because typically companies would go and buy that and would sit unused. They right. use like 10% of it and like, that's it. And in a similar fashion to computing infrastructure before the cloud is how many companies out there actually had the sophistication and knowledge and talent to capacity plan and forecast and really manage capacity in a way where they weren't wasting money. The reality is not many. Yeah. So so a NAS company can specialize in those kinds of practices and forecasting and capacity planning and utilization and resilience and quality of service. And me as an enterprise, I can just I just farm that out, and I may end up spending a lot less because I'm not sitting there purchasing long-term unused capacity. Exactly. Yeah, and they're taking it a step further, right? As these platforms continue to evolve, and you're seeing folks like Megaport, you know, bring in SD WAN into the yeah, equation. I was going to say, well, you mentioned that connectivity is the simplest service. What are the, some of the other network services that I, I yeah. can get on demand? That's still connectivity, right? I mean, it's essentially integrating. What Megaport is doing is integrating with the SD-WAN provider. So if you're an enterprise and you've got your office and you want you have SD-WAN, you can actually connect with Megaport and access that whole ecosystem and access those cloud on-ramps directly from those offices or whatever on-prem location that you want. However, connectivity is that one service. If we take it a step further, we look at someone like Equinix that essentially has their own, they have a fabric that does the same kind of things. Then they have Network Edge, which is essentially, I call that network as a service as well, because it's basically virtual infrastructure for firewalls or routers or switches, right? So you can actually go to an Equinix data center in Chicago, deploy your network, deploy a couple servers. Then you say, I really want to reach my customers and get a little bit more control over my traffic in Dallas, but you don't want to spend the money. So you could spin up a virtual network router, connect it to the fabric, connect to those ISPs or partners or customers directly, and then connect that back to your physical infrastructure in Chicago and get rid of all of that CapEx that goes into deploying a new site. That's the next step. And there's and, and we can go even further, right? Because I was thinking about this actually over the weekend. And I think one of the true network as a service platforms is actually Cloudflare. And that's because- I was going to say, are, these, are they eventually going to be competing with Cloudflare? Yes, you read my mind or I read yours. Yeah. So when you look at it, right, like Cloudflare offers DNS, yeah. right? And, and security services. and yeah, Right. And all these other network-based network services. Yeah. So it's now you start, if you start thinking of it that way, you say, wow, like Packet Fabric, Megaport, like it's just connectivity. Like how big is this really going to get? Where on the other hand, you have Cloudflare who's got storage and databases and serverless edge computing and network services like DNS and IPsec tunneling and DDoS scrubbing and all, and like real networks as a service. 
they have their own SD-WAN and SASE type of play, right? And they integrate with those people as well. So I said, oh man, it's probably a matter of time before they do similar offerings for the enterprise. And I think they've even talked about it. If you look at what they talk about and they've got this whole TAM expansion that really is about attacking the telcos and, you know, MPLS market, which is like 45 billion globally. I see the same bloodbath that you do <laughs> yeah, in the future. Yeah. In the future. So let's talk a little bit about Edge. It's interesting you mentioned Equinix's Edge services. And as you know, even though I've spent the last five years of my life touting Edge, I'm actually starting to move away from it because I think it's gotten it's, it's gotten overtaken by the marketers, including me. But it's interesting because there's a little bit of truth there. I mean, the Edge that Equinix cares about is the Edge of their network, which stops at their data centers, more or less. And somebody else's edge is different. How do, how do you think of, not the edge necessarily, but how do you think of that space between the customer's premises and, and the, nearest, the nearest exchange point? How mm-hmm. do you think of yeah. that space? Yeah, I just don't, I don't even like using the word edge anymore because I think, I, think it boil, I think it really boils down to it's just a place, like geographical place, right? And it it doesn't have to do with networks. It doesn't have to do with clouds. It doesn't have to do with computing. It's just kind of the perimeter between almost like interconnection, right? Like that's an, if me and you interconnect, like that's our edge, right? That's, that's our, right. That's our yeah. edge where we yeah. connect to external parties and third parties, right? And different networks. And this is, I've only really started to think about this uh, recently because I started to see so much stuff and people just say edge and I say, well, what, what do you mean by edge? Right. Is it, are you talking about edge computing? Are you talking about edge networks? Are you talking about mobile net? Like, cause it's all different, right? Like the edge of a mobile network is very different than the edge of a terrestrial network or a space network, right. Or a enterprise network. And then there's different types of edges. So it's just like, Let's be specific about what we're talking about. Is it edge computing? And now we're talking about very specifically the compute, right? Because these days, everybody wants to just go and say, I'm an edge data center. I'm like, cool. Guess what? Everybody in the, every data center in the world is an edge data center well, if I, you want it to I, be. I have a great one for you. So, and this is really what started to shift my thinking. I mean, I have a podcast named Over the Edge. <laughs> is for, the, for the first year of, of doing this, I went around and asked everybody for the definition of edge. And if I asked 80 people, I got 90 different answers. And it was just kind of this, let's collect it. And then I co-founded State of the Edge to try to define some of this. But the more interesting question that I've come up now is what's the difference between edge computing and on-premises computing? It's a good question. Because I've seen it. I've seen this touted. Let me think of one specific example, which is Switch. Then the project they announced announced with FedEx. FedEx, yeah. And... It's using FedEx real estate for edge computing. The only thing I don't know, is that open to third parties or is it just, just for, for FedEx? FedEx, right? And so essentially it's on-prem and you're, and you're right. A lot of people I've talked to have talked about, I'm going to put this container or modular data center in the parking lot or nearby a warehouse or retail or whatever the case may be. And we're like, well, why wouldn't you just put it inside at that point? Like you have a warehouse. Well, like, I would say the know, opposite. Why can't I just get that from the internet like I get everything else? That too. Yeah. Do you really need it there? And I, I, I think I do understand some of the applications like manufacturing and smart manufacturing and some of these things where you get into it, where you do need some of that compute. And But what are people doing for that? They're putting an AWS outpost inside the factory floor or whatever the case may be. I think it's still really early and we're still really watching these kind of use cases come up and say, does this make sense? People are going to try it. Where are we with that, right? So at the end of the day, with this, with the whole edge thing, to me, it's just on-premise. I mean, there's no reason to call it edge. You're all of a sudden just saying, 
hey, I've got a server closet with all this stuff and that's my on-prem. Or maybe I've, it's a big server closet and it's like they call it their corporate data center, but it's got 20 racks inside their office in Manhattan. Are you all of a sudden just going to go start calling that Edge since it's 2022 or? Well, so, so so I've actually gotten some interesting answers to this question. I mean, most people look at me and say, there's that much difference, right? Which is like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> You've definitely yeah. learned something when, when the top people in the industry say that. But I got one good answer, which was, well, the control plane extends all the way back to the centralized cloud. Okay, that's that's meaningful. It's not all definition of edge computing, but it's certainly an interesting one. And the other one is what's exciting about for a lot of people about edge computing, and I just did air quotes for those people listening, <laughs> is that they they imagine that all of these services will be delivered in the same way that cloud is delivered. So it's almost like edge as a service is, is what's interesting to a lot of people. Because otherwise it is just on-premises computing. I mean, a rack of computers on an oil derrick is a rack of computers on a node there. And we've been doing that for decades. That's not edge computing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, that's a, absolutely a great point in, in talking about where the control plane and how that's all integrated, right? And obviously network fabrics and all that stuff and come into that picture, right? At a, at a yeah, it's part point. of the network. I mean, if you look back at the history of, of the word, the phrase edge computing, the farthest I could trace it back was a paper that the founders of Akamai wrote, which they were talking about like this, interconnected edge, like where is the edge of the internet? And I agree, depending on whether you've got last mile and other things, that that's a little blurry, but it is an interesting question. It comes back to what we're talking about, about interconnection, right? Because you think about what are today's tier one cities, right? Some of them were, were yesterday tier two cities, like Denver maybe, right? Are mm -hmm. arguably almost a tier one city. And so do you see the internet being pushed farther and farther out? Do you see that trend? I think I see that trend, but I'm wondering if you see that trend. Yeah, I do. And I think one of the obvious in indicators here is it's not tier two data centers or anything like that. It's actually AWS local zones. So, which is, for those that don't know. Connected to their got, private backbone. <laughs> yeah. So you've got, you've got your AWS cloud, which is in a bunch of different regions around the world. If we talk about the US, we are talking about Northern Virginia, Columbus, Ohio, and Northern California for simplified purposes. Now, local zones are basically going down to tier, tier one and tier two markets and essentially giving some form of compute and AWS services, which then actually just tether back to a parent region. So Los Angeles was the first AWS local zone they launched, and that's tethered back to AWS US West, which is in Oregon. And so that local zone offers a handful of services. Right. The highest right? demand, the need for the highest performance, lowest latency services. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, I think, one of the best indicators, of course, along with the edge cloud CDN type of platforms like Akamai, and, but they have a different reason. And it's all about squeezing out every ounce of performance that you could, right? Embedding those caches into ISP networks, getting close to users no matter what the scenario, right? Because their deployment model was also really not that capital intensive, right? Like if you're deploying into a service provider network, you say, hey, here's a couple servers or here's a rack of servers, depending who you are. You've got folks like Netflix who does this with OpenConnect and Akamai and Cloudflare does it and Google does it with the Google Global Cache. And so they've been pushing down further and now they've got new services because content delivery is actually quickly becoming the least amount of revenue from these big CDN providers. I say now CDN is dead. 
It's just a service. You've now got cloud infrastructure platform, edge cloud, whatever you want to call it, delivering security service, security services, compute services, all kinds of different things. And so I look at the AWS local zones, that's bringing the cloud down. You've got computing now in Los Angeles and I don't know, 30, 40, 50 cities now globally that they've deployed and announced. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine that not that long ago, five years ago, like if you wanted to start up a, an EC2 incident, Amazon you, in the US, you had two choices, US West and US East, right? I mean, yeah. there's some availability zones, but essentially you had two places you could do it. And now maybe you can do it 50? That seems like still a tiny number. It's really interesting how that's going to change. Now, one of the things, and I'm interested in how you, you think about this, one of the things that I think is going to drive a lot of this, if it's not driving it already, is the internet to date has primarily been about humans consuming content. I mean, that's been the high bandwidth, right? And so mm-hmm. that's why the, the CDNs have been so popular. You catch the Netflix movie out near you, right? But we're moving into a world where machines are going to be generating data, far more data than is actually sitting on all of Netflix servers and Amazon servers today. And it's expensive to ship that data around. And especially as more data creates more congestion and more demand, the price is going to go up. It's, it's really interesting. And so, in fact, I, I, I sat next to the CTO of Seagate at a dinner, and we did this exercise where we imagined a factory that generated a petabyte of data. And we calculated that it would be faster and more economical to store that on hard drives and put them on a truck than it would be to, to ship it ship it over the internet. Welcome to <laughs> welcome to filmmaking in 2022 still. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal thing. And really, so there's there's two answers to that. One is you pay a lot of money, or you ship a lot of hard drives around, or you don't send the data very far, which I guess speaks to why you want to push compute. I mean it's a lot easier to move one server out than it is a petabyte of data back to yeah. the core. How, how do you think about it? Tell me, tell me how you think about that. It's, I mean, I think that's a tough problem. Like I said, welcome to filmmaking 2022, right? I mean, they've obviously got a bunch of other security and things like that where they're just like, I'd rather have someone, this trusted person. We're tracking it. We know where the, we know where the, where the movie and the film and all, the, and all that data is going. But I think that you're seeing and you're going to see, right, a lot of data and a lot more data generated, whether it's in a suburban area, a rural area, a metro area, that has to go somewhere first to be processed, just based on the sheer amount of it. Like if you're going to be using cloud and you want to get away from sending hard drives and things like that, where do you send it? Where does it go first? The cloud has to come closer. These have to to come on premises or near premises. Exactly. And so you'll have a lot of that that happens on-prem, right? Like, I mean, let's think about like, like autonomous vehicles is a great one. Like that's being stored on the car. I think Cruz wrote this up really well a couple of years ago, which is the data is generated, stored on the car, goes to a parking lot, and it plugs in and uploads that data then to the cloud. They've got fiber and what I don't know what I mean. It's it would I would it would be super interesting to see what they're doing in that aspect because that's what they're doing, right? Is store the data on the car and then they go upload. It. And this is applies to probably a lot of different industries and a lot of different functions, right? I mean, smart city infrastructure comes to top of mind, and there's probably plenty of other things, but. So you've got to have, a, you know, the cloud comes closer, right? And that's what AWS LocalZones is doing. Some of the other folks have not introduced anything like this yet, which is interesting, like Microsoft and Google. You know, Microsoft has introduced something, but not really similar in that way. AWS is really ahead of the pack again. And so you've got to get that somewhere first. And then each of them have this cloud infrastructure that you could go lease as servers, like AWS's outposts. So you can get this whole outpost rack 
And I can get one here and put it in my apartment or could put it in on-prem in the office. You probably or want to wait to the, to the one RU and two RU that's come out. Be a little more yeah, practical. And so, <laughs> and, so they ha- and then they have servers as well, right? Yeah. And Google, actually Google did, did have something like this, I guess, uh, Distributed Edge, which is like their outpost kind of thing where they've got a rack unit, a full rack, and they've got like two U or one use servers that you can get as part of distributed edge. I think it's a lot of the telco 5G and, and stuff that's really driving some of that. So let's look at the future. What are the kind of obvious trends that you see, at least obvious to you, that you think are kind of inevitable? And then pick a couple things that you just think are maybe a little crazy and controversial. So let's start with easy ones. Uh, okay, easy one. The world will be a cloud. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? And so what I mean by that is you've got a lot of people, a lot of companies still putting workloads into data centers that likely belong in the cloud, right? They're, and so you take your small IT shop and they go put a rack or two in a data center. Do they really need to do that? I, I would never want to own a data center or, or lease one. I just want to. Right. Yeah. Or just even just Colo, yeah. right? Do they need to go to Equinix and put one or two racks in Colo and connect to two service providers and that's it? Probably not. So I think that over time, a lot of that type of business is going to churn from your your multi-tenant colo providers. And over time as well, you've got to offer something that's differentiated. Now, Equinix is the best example to talk to as being a proxy for this because they saw it coming and they continue to innovate and evolve that platform to capture that demand. So they'll get those colo workloads, but they're more valuable and they're more meaningful because of the digital infrastructure services that they also offer, whether it's a virtual router or a network fabric connecting them to the cloud. So it's a multi-hybrid cloud workload. And then other kind of services like bare metal, they bought packet and now, okay, now I've got my infrastructure, but eventually you don't have to. So. I think a lot of that's going to go away and you're going to go be able to go into a data center and say, okay, I'm going to buy some bare metal in Chicago, Dallas, New York, Los Angeles. I'm going to buy some network fabric connectivity and ports. I'm going to connect that all together. I'm going to connect it to my cloud, which is my primary infrastructure workloads. And it's going to be Google. It's going to be Amazon. It's going to be Microsoft. And I don't need to own any infrastructure anymore. So that's one of the big things is I think that will, those kind of- The, world, the world's a cloud, I like that. I might steal it. <laughs> yeah, the world's a cloud. And then if you take the next step, so the next big thing I'll say is you'll, you're gonna see a lot more vertically integrated network fabrics, hmm. right? More so, let's talk about like what Megaport and Packet Fabric are doing and then look at what Cloudflare is doing with all these network as a, all these network services selling networks as a service, right? And then think about all of your traditional legacy service providers like Zayo and Verizon and Windstream and all these guys. Well, it's all about connecting locations, right? And being able to capture that demand because there's not many locations that actually are representing such a significant part of the market. So you've got to be everywhere. Everybody's got different requirements. So I see those fabrics now connecting those clouds and, ex- and those colos and extending out to all kinds of different infrastructure and locations. Whether that's, I mean, look at just simply like what the clouds are doing with satellite. Like now they've got ground station as a service and things like that. So where is the network fabric for the enterprise that connects all of this? 
that says, well, here's my enterprise headquarters, here's my branches, here's all this. And someone might say, well, that's SD-WAN. They say that's not really SD-WAN, right? SD-WAN is kind of one of the earlier pieces of this puzzle that allow you to add security and control performance of different types of network actions in a bunch of different locations. But what's the real fabric that lets you spin all this up and down that's connecting all of the cloud? If it's not SD-WAN, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's. I don't think it's actually here yet. And that includes mobile networks. Okay, what if you've got a private five G network in your factory or whatever, and you want to connect that to the cloud, and you want to connect it to your branch or your headquarters or Equinix and your colo? And so, where's that ubiquitous network fabric that just connects all of this? And all, but also at the same time, what it does is allows customers to use different service providers. Really, right? And and hedge their reliability and resilience. Multi-cloud and multi-network. Right. And so that yeah. isn't something that's really been done. While some of these fabrics have different network providers providing underlying capacity, not many of them allow you to choose. Some of them do. I mean, you can go into an Equinix and connect to Verizon's last mile network, right? And, and do some things there. And some other folks have some stuff like this, like Packet Fabric, you can do it with Colt and, and a bunch of stuff like that. But none of them are really ubiquitous in that, hey, I want to make sure that my connectivity between these two locations are using different providers, but at the same time are not driving my performance down and are actually creating value instead of saying, well, here, I've got two providers, but this one takes a really long route and degrades the performance. Well, even simpler than that, rather than picking the providers, just have a resilience dial and have some AI yeah. pick the providers. Have a, a, a cost dial and, and a resilience dial and to tell the AI how to balance them. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when you say that, Matt, is there are so many dials and knobs and levers in networks and in network software like Cisco and Juniper and, and all that that probably are not being used to the fullest potential or even exposed to a customer that might want to change something like that. Yeah, I bet, you, I bet you're right. Yeah, it's interesting. I've started in our circles uh, in my job, I've been talking to people about digital twinnable systems. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, I mean, all these network components could be digitally twinned, right? Yeah. And you could monitor all the traffic and run predictive AI models on it and tweak some knobs and run some other predictive AI models. And I wonder how much of the, the meta fabric is going to be part of the delivery of the fabric. Probably quite a bit. Okay, so how about something controversial? Controversial. Maybe not controversial. <sighs> okay, so we've got the world as a cloud. We've got the ubiquitous network fabric. I guess, and I don't know if this is, this might be a little controversial, but carrier hotels are dead. Okay, what does that mean? Well, what is a okay. carrier hotel? Because we talked, okay. we mentioned it three or four times, we didn't describe it. We just said it's a small IX point. <laughs> right, so look, carrier hotel is typically a multi-tenant building, right? So in a, in a populous city, right? So let's use New York, mm -hmm. for example. You've got a carrier, you've got a building, you've got this building called 60 Hudson, it's a carrier hotel, meaning it's a single building with multiple tenants operating co-location facilities inside. So you've got Digital Realty, you've got Hudson Inter, I don't, man, I don't know the name. It was called DataGrid. They just called themselves Hudson IX. It's not an internet exchange. We'll call it Hudson. And a, and a whole bunch of yeah. other people operating the building. 
from carriers, right? So like Crown Castle or Zeo have their own cola facility because guess what? As you grow, all that fiber, all that has to go somewhere, has to terminate somewhere, yeah. It does, and it, it, it becomes a lot. So I think that carrier hotels are dead based on the fact that it's complex. They're very complex because of all these different locations inside controlled by different third-party entities, meaning there's no standard cost for connecting, right? So if you want to go between digital realty in the same building and the Equinix in the same building, it might cost you more than the service you're buying. It might cost you three times as much as the service you're buying. Because you have and to pay so, some guy to run to run, to pull fiber through a conduit probably. Right, exactly those kind of things. Some some union guy. <laughs> yeah. Right, so, I mean, there's a lot of components to go into, yeah. right? You pay the building. If you're the operator, you pay the building for conduit or you pay the building or and you pay the building for the fiber riser going between floors, which a lot of times is charged based on the foot, linear foot. And then you've got to make that 99.9% profit on your cross-connect. So that drives the cost of that up. And so if we think about it, we say, well, okay, so the costs are high, the, co- the connectivity is complex, the power is high, right? You're now in a, a, a very tight, very dense building in a large metro area, typically, maybe a smaller one as well. And there's typically just not a lot of room to expand. I mean, remember, these buildings were back in the days, like for telecom, when it was voice and like infrastructure might have been big, but it had nowhere near so the these, these large demands. windowless buildings you see when you try to drive around. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you think about it like that, right, like, Okay. What's it replaced with? If it's if the if the carry hotel is going to die, what what replaces it? Yeah. So I mean, let me tell you, like, and this has been happening, right? So let's look. We're talking about New York. So we said sixty Hudson's a carry hotel there, right? And then you've got one eleven eighth Avenue, one eleven eighth Avenue. So that was bought by Google, and over time, since they bought it, they would not renew data center operators' leases. So. Like they want this for office, right? And they be and I and look, I used to live in a neighborhood over there. They've brought this whole or they've been building this whole campus where they've been buying all these buildings in that area like they do keep everybody close. They don't want data centers in there. And you even see this with Equinix leaving carrier hotels, right? So the the next thing is a purpose-built data center in the metro. And New York, again, is the best example because what we saw in the beginning when Google bought 111 was Equinix really accelerate its Secaucus hub, which now has tons of financial networks, tons of other networks. And remember, when you're in a metro like that, deployment for a carrier or a service provider doesn't all look the same. They've got to have a core in a couple places, but not every place. And so sometimes those extensions, as they may call them, or they may call them edge sites, they all aggregate back to the core. So guess what? No, you you win a deal and you're like all excited and you know we're gonna get someone that's a big name social media or hyperscaler and they're gonna put their equipment in your data center and then they're gonna backhaul it all to Equinix and Secaucus. Right. So, it, it, look, this will take a long time to play out. They're not gonna go away. There's still probably gonna be a place for fiber because there's already enormous amounts of fiber in them, but they're just too expensive to build and evolve infrastructure in as as it continues to grow at the rate it's grown at. That's a good one. We'll watch for that. Hey, Kirsten, this this has been an awesome conversation. This has been a heck of a lot of fun. If people want to find you online, where can they find you? Yeah, I'd say the best place is to check out my email newsletter. So it's uh, at foundations.email. 
I read it every time it comes out. Thank you. And you can, of course, find me on LinkedIn or anything like that. But subscribe to the newsletter, reply, ask questions, have a chat. I'm always up for, oh, always up to talking shop and hearing about new perspectives and learning. So check it out. That's awesome. Thanks, Christian. Thanks, Matt. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.